Uh, what got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney? 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 Whitney Johnson is one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world. She's an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption, a framework codified in the critically acclaimed book, Disrupt Yourself, putting the power of disruptive innovation to work, as well as the award-winning Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, published by Harvard Business Press in 2018. Her proprietary framework and diagnostics were developed after co-founding the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. She is formerly an award-winning stock analyst on Wall Street and a coach for Harvard Business School's executive education. In 2019, she was ranked number three on the Global Guru's Top 30 Organizational Culture Professionals. Whitney is also the host of the Disrupt Yourself podcast. On this episode, Sean and Whitney dive deep in disruption, finding your unique skills, questions, curiosity, and so much more. This is a conversation between two disruptors that you will not want to miss making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meet Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto-friendly, zero-sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey graham. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and created his own. This low-carb, zero-sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant-based protein, 6 grams grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina, C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A, Crunch.com, and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate, and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. Whitney, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. No, it is an absolute honor. Your work has something that has influenced me, and this is going to be a jam-packed episode, and one that's going to be at the intersection of disruption, entrepreneurship, teamwork, and a lot of other things. But let's start at the beginning. How do you usually start your day? Well, I usually start my day by I wake up, and um, I wake up somewhere between 5 and 5.30, and, um, but I don't want to get out of bed yet. <laughs> so I'm awake. <laughs> 
but I'd like to stay in bed a little bit longer. And but, but I've also learned that if I just try to lay there, my mind starts sort of not being very productive. So I immediately put my AirPods in my ears and I start listening. Um, so I start by listening to some auto suggestions that I've made that I've recorded for myself. Like, you know, I'm so happy and thankful that I'm happy or I'm so happy and thankful that I leave an impression of increase with everybody I meet today just to get myself thinking and on a frame of mind that I want to. As I wrote in my newsletter not too long ago, I don't, my set point isn't naturally happy. You know how some people bounce out of bed? That is not me. And so I have to every morning kind of set myself into a happy, upbeat place. So that's the first thing I do. And then I'll listen to some scriptures from my faith tradition. Um, I will then after that, uh, listen to, um, typically right now, I'm listening to Bob Proctor's Lead the Field that he did with Earl Nightingale, who is sort of a father of the human potential movement. And once I've done those things, which typically will be about an hour, I will now be awake, get ready, you know, be able to get out of bed. And then I will go down to my office when I'm not traveling and start working. So that's how I start my day when I'm at home. I'm really interested about the auto suggestions. And I've had that self-narration in the past where I'm just talking it through my mind, but I would love to know how you came to that point that you decided to record your own thoughts and then re-listen to them back. Yeah, so um, I think it's a combination of two things. Um, something I read or listened to around Napoleon Hill or, or Earl Nightingale or Bob Proctor, sort of one of the three, or perhaps all three. And so what I had decided I would do is that I would write them all down. So I've written them out. But then this notion of we learn um, and things are reinforced when we use as many of our senses as possible. So if we're, you know, writing it and saying it and listening to it, then it's reinforced in a more powerful way. And when we actually say it, because our subconscious doesn't know whether we're telling the truth or we're lying, we're just telling it what we want to be true. When I say that out loud, then my subconscious goes, it must be true. So then my brain has to figure out a way for a way to make it be true. And so then I start to become the person that I want to become. I'm so glad you brought up the multiple senses. I feel like that's something that's innate and, and we remember it subconsciously, but we don't always remember to do it day to day. So you mentioned writing things down. Are you a big note taker, journaler? I am. I am. I've, I've kept a journal on and off for my entire life. And um, sometimes I'm really good at it. Sometimes I'm not very good at it. Sometimes you can read what I've actually recorded. Sometimes you cannot. Um, but I remember reading a, a quote from, I'm, paraphrasing very badly from, a, from a, a, a religious leader by the name of Spencer W. Kimball that said something like, when you write things down, your life basically becomes more worth living. Like when you record, you, you start to live in a way that your life is something that you want to record. Um, and then the other thing that I've noticed is that if I don't write stuff down, I don't remember it. Um, so I, yeah, so I'm a big note taker, journaler recording my life, um, so that it's a life that I feel like is worth living. Even if you did paraphrase, I love that quote. That's one I'm definitely going to go back and listen to again. As you advance throughout the day though, do you have any other non-negotiables, any things you try to do maybe later in the day just to, to be more productive or even get more out of life? Um, great question. This, this is something that I am working on. So, um, I have found that my days go better when I meditate. One of the things that I'm working on that I'm not doing very well yet. Well, actually one thing I do do pretty well is I do exercise 
Um, usually I try to exercise by like nine or 10 in the morning and I'll go get on the treadmill and I'll run and listen to gospel music, which is super upbeat and super fun. It's something I've just discovered that I'm really enjoying. It's kind of like, you know, Stevie wonder, but you know, cause I loved Stevie wonder and earth, Wind and fire. And I love hip hop, but the lyrics tend to be like stuff. I don't really want to listen to and gospel music allows me to kind of do the combination of the two. So that's really fun. So running and exercise ends up being a non-negotiable. The thing that I'm working on that I'm still not doing very well yet is that as the day progresses, I find that I start to revert to my training, which is if I get anxious, I don't stop and say, you know what, it'd be really good idea if right now I spent five minutes meditating, for example, or it'd be really good right now if I would go take a walk. So that's something that I'm working on and trying to build in so that I can keep my productivity high throughout the day and especially into the afternoon when my energy starts to lag a little bit. So work in progress. I'll get there. I'm not there yet. Something that really impressed me, I hope will be a reoccurring theme throughout this podcast is you being able to articulate both your strengths and your weaknesses. And you mentioned, you said you do well with in terms of working out. How easy or hard has it been for you to be able to articulate your strengths? Oh, lots and lots and lots of work and practice. So, <laughs> so, um, so it's something that I, I think I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years, in part because, um, so in my, in my framework of um, personal disruption that allows you to be this high growth individual, there's seven accelerants that allow you to move up that S curve of learning. And the second one is to play to your distinctive strengths. And so it's something that I've thought a lot about, not only what our strengths are. In fact, I did an entire podcast episode on strengths, like 30 minutes on how do you figure out what they are? Because there's so many nuances to it. Like, first of all, what are your strengths? Do you even know what they are? And we all think, oh yeah, I know what my strengths are, but we don't because, and here's why, because when we get compliments, we deflect the compliments because we've been conditioned not to listen to what we do well. Like we have to ignore it because if we don't, then we're not being modest, we're being braggadocio, et cetera. So first of all, we have to even be aware of what our strengths are. Then once we know what they are, we tend not to value them because they're really, really easy for us. So we're like, oh, that can't possibly be valuable because like I can do it. So if I can do it, it can't be valuable. So I just keep on tuning into this like, how do you know what your strength is? Once you know what it is, how do you actually value it? And once you value it, how do you make sure that you lean into it? And so often when we get 360 reviews, there's the, the development goals, which is code for let's work on, on stuff that you don't do well. But we know from the neuroscience, and this is some of the work that Marcus Buckingham has done, is that wherever you have a lot of neurons in your brain and a lot of interconnections, that's where it's easy to have a lot more neurons and a lot more interconnections, which basically means wherever you're strong, you can get a lot stronger faster. So for me, I'm like, okay, I need to be aware of what my weaknesses are because I don't want them to derail me. I have to mitigate them. But the only way that you and I are going to truly become high growth individuals is if we can figure out what we do well and in particular, what we do idiosyncratically well, and then we double down and triple down on that. And that is how we're not only going to be happy, but actually make our greatest contribution to our workplace, to the people around us, to the world generally. So yeah, I'm really focused on strengths. I think they're super, super important. What I love so much about these conversations 
is someone like yourself who's such an expert at this and you can just articulate it. It's almost like every 15 seconds would be an unbelievable uh, short little snippet clip to replay over and over again. So thank, thank you for being able to lay it out this way. Thank you. I'm really thinking though about your thinking and clearly you must have spent a tremendous amount of time sitting there thinking about this, mapping out your ideas. What does that process look like for you? Hmm, that's a great question. So the process, it's a, it's a meta question, right? What's the process of how you think about the world? Um, so here's how I get my ideas. I start with the N of one. I start with my experience. And, um, and I know that that's not, I, you know, when you're younger, you think, oh, well, that's how everybody gets their ideas. But then I've learned that that's actually not true. We all have different ways of of um, figuring out and thinking about and making meaning of the world. And so my way of making meaning of the world is I look at my experience and you'll see this in my newsletters. Like every week I'll have an experience and that experience is usually something that I don't quite know what to do with. It made me a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it made me go, huh, that's interesting. But usually it's something I'm wrestling with. And then it's out of that experience of, okay, I want to figure out what this means. What do I do with it? What do I do next? I start to think, all right, well, I wonder to what extent other people are having that experience. And then how do I generalize that and universalize that? Let me give you, do you want me to give you an example of what I I'd love one. Okay. So a great example of this is... I'm working on Wall Street. This is like 2003, 2004. I'm working on Wall Street. I'm an equity analyst covering um, emerging markets, telecom, and media. And around that time, I am. I go to my boss, and I've been doing it for about eight years. I'm really good at what I'm doing, but it's time for me to do something new because, in my parlance, I'm at the top of an S curve. I didn't know it this then, but like it was time for me to disrupt myself didn't know that. But I go to my boss. I'm like, Hey, I want to do something new. And he basically says, we like you right where you are. I'm like, okay. So around that same time, I've now read the innovator's dilemma by Clayton Christensen, which at its simplest means a disruptor is a silly little thing that takes over the world. So I'm reading these ideas and I'm thinking to myself, huh, this, I understand he wrote this book and it helps us understand products and services and companies, but I think this kind of relates to this experience that I'm having at work, which is if I stay here, I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I feel like I need to accomplish in life, whatever that is, right? We have some big notion that there's something else for us, but we don't know what it is. If I'm going to do that, then I might need to disrupt myself. In other words, this framework might actually also apply to me as a person. And so it was that kernel of an idea that led me on this journey where I did leave Wall Street. I eventually connected with Clayton Christensen, invested alongside him, at, and applying this theory to the products and investing, et cetera. But all along, running in the back of my mind is, what does this theory tell me about my experience? And if it tells me something about my experience, what does it tell me about the experience of the people around me? How do we generalize this? How do we universalize this? So again, my process of thinking, I start with the N of one. I start looking for patterns. I'm always, always scanning the environment for metaphors. Like how can I take this experience around bread baking and apply it to S curves of learning in teams? And how can I take this other experience around waves and the ocean and apply it. So N of one, 
How do I generalize, universalize, and then how do I scan the environment for um, other disciplines, other ways of viewing the world that will help me drill down and understand what it is I'm trying to solve for? You're hitting a hot button for me in terms of the experiences and those different disciplines. I would love if you could even dive a little deeper on that. Just your overall thoughts. What are the inputs you're looking for in those different disciplines to try to culminate them together? Yeah, so it's a great question. So for example, so when I wrote um, the book Disrupt Yourself, so that's my second book, I'm now thinking, all right, disruption is not just about products, it's about people. I'm developing this framework of personal disruption. I've got these seven different accelerants, right? Take the right risks, play to your distinctive strengths, etc. In my mind, though, I'm thinking, well, if I just lay out this framework, that is not going to help people. It's dry. It won't be something that they can actually really ingest because it's purely on the intellectual level. And what we know, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, is that you don't actually learn something until you can feel it or you can experience it or you have some way to relate it to something you already know. So in my brain, I'm constantly looking for, okay, so if I'm saying to you, it's important for you to play to your strengths. So let's continue on this theme. How do I talk about that in a way that you can hear it so that it starts to really kind of permeate how you think about the world? And how can I leverage something that you already know something about? So for strengths, um, what I did is I said, and credit to my husband, because I think this was his idea. And a shout out to my husband. He's a scientist. He said, um, well, what about the koala? Because I was talking about how do you play not only to your strengths, but to your distinctive strengths. We're like, well, what about the koala? Well, we all know the koala. It's this cuddly little animal, right? We love the koala. Well, what we know about the ko- koala is that it sleeps up to 20 hours a day. So you're like, huh. If I slept up to 20 hours a day, I would have a pretty hard time putting food on the table. Most of us would. So why is it able to sleep up to 20 hours a day and still be alive? Because it eats eucalyptus leaves, which I did not know this. They are poisonous to pretty much every single being on the planet, animals and and people um, as well. So this now is a distinctive strength because it doesn't have to forage for food because it's just there because no one else wants it. So now I've got this example where when I say to someone, hey, you should play to your strengths, your distinctive strengths, and I explain to them the koala that everybody knows, they're like, oh, I get it. Immediately they get it. They have somewhere to put it. So, you know, and then I'll, so anyway, I'll stop there. But that that's the idea is how can I find a story or an example or an experience that will allow people depending on their own experience, depending on their style of learning, whether it's visual, whether it's auditory, to really understand. I'll give you one more example. So um, when I talk about embracing constraints, which is the third accelerant of personal disruption, I'm like, okay, so what's an example there? And again, always scanning the environment. What stories am I hearing? What can explain it? Well, I found find out from a friend of mine, her name is Christine Hagland. She says to me, did you know that Ave Maria, a song that most of us know, we've heard it at weddings, we've heard it in film, we know that song Ave Maria. Well, what we don't know about Ave Maria is that Ave Maria came about because the composer, Charles Gounod, decided 
he could have taken a melody and started anywhere, but he decided to start with a constraint. So I talk about the importance of embracing constraints, a constraint or tool creation. So I use this as an illustration. I say, did you know that Ave Maria is composed over Bach's a Bach prelude? So he took this prelude written by Bach and said, I'm going to find a way, I'm going to use this constraint and then build a melody on top of that. It's an enduring melody. We love it all because he started with a constraint. And then you can have people listen to Yo-Yo Ma playing Ave Maria with the Bach prelude um, underneath that with a pianist and the accompanist playing that. And so now all of a sudden people are like, oh, I get what you mean. You embrace your constraint. The constraint is a tool of creation. And now we've used music. We've used people's ear in order to emphasize that so that when they're in a business setting, you're like, I've got this constraint. I don't know what I do with it. They can remember, well, Charles Gounod used it to, to create this beautiful piece of music. How can I use my lack of money or time or binary expertise to create something remarkable within my sphere of influence here inside of my, my workplace? You mentioned Charles Gounod and his ability to do this. Is there anyone else that you've actually personally come across that just has a higher level capability of doing this? It's a great question. Um, nothing comes to mind immediately. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Of course, I have another example for you. Um, I'll give you two examples. First one is um, I actually interviewed him for my podcast. Um, so author, I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. So, um, this author, when he was in high school, um, he, he was in high school in like the sixties and seventies and he was, you know, he wanted to be an author and oh, I actually have two stories for you. Okay. I'll tell you both stories. Okay. Um, he wanted to be an author, a poet. And so he writes, you know, this is the sixties and seventies is the era of Bob Dylan. And so he writes this really gushing poetry and his, his, um, his teacher comes back to him and he's like, okay. If you want to actually, if you're serious about becoming an author, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go study Shakespeare's sonnets, and I want you to write a hundred sonnets, which is a very specific, you know, how do I love thee? Let me, no, that's not it. Um, oh, 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 I can't think about the top of my head. This is not going to be a good example. Okay, scratch this. Sean, I'm going to start over. I'm going to give you a different example. Okay. You can edit this out. Okay, I've got two examples for you. One is... Um, in 1954, an editor at Houghton Mifflin um, read the now famous article, Why Johnny Can't Read. He reads it. He's like really concerned, like we've got a problem. So he reaches out to one of his editor friends and he says, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take 225 unique words that every six-year-old knows and, um, and write a book that they can't put down. So he's like, okay. It takes them a year and a half. It's really hard. At one point, it's so discouraging, almost gives up. But then in 1957, when Dr. Seuss published The Cat and the Hat, Theodore Geisel, it was an instant hit because years of reciting rhymes, of creating cartoons, of leveraging what he did uniquely well prepared Theodore Geisel to reinvent children's literature when presented with that 225 word constraint. So that to me is a great example of operating within constraints and, and what that can mean in a modern day example. 
I absolutely love that example. I, I love asking this question and seeing where your mind goes. So, so thank you for that. I also want to dive back into, into disruption, which was the title of your second book. And a quote from that book I just love is, I know change can feel lonely and scary, but what I've learned is that when it comes to personal disruption, if it's lonely and scary, you are probably on the right path. I think this resonates just so much with people. So I'm so glad you added that one in the book. Can you even speak more to that about just the, the feeling inside that scariness that we have to overcome to, to embrace that disruption? Yeah. Well, so if you think about where, where does that come from? You think about the idea of disruption and what, it, what are you doing when you're disrupting? You're playing where no one else is playing. You're looking for, you know, can I create a market? Um, can I create a market for this product? Can I create a market for myself? Which means you're playing where no one else is playing. And if you're playing on the playground by yourself initially, that means it's going to be a little bit lonely. And because we're all humans that like to be long, it can feel scary as well. So, so part of that feeling, the way I think about it is that um, I have a couple thoughts here that I'll share. So one is that you're, you're on wherever you are today is comfortable to you. You may not think it's awesome, but it's still comfortable. And so whenever you leave your comfortable perch, whatever you're doing, um, and doing things the way you've always done them, there is a moment of basically free fall where you're losing your identity briefly because your identity is whatever it is. That's what it is. So then you think about this idea of your PE or your puke to excitement ratio can feel really, really, really high. And like you're on this thrill ride to zero. So that's, that's the feeling that you have. And, and one of the ways that I have started to realize, I know when I am in that scary and lonely, because it's easy to be like, well, scary and lonely, like I don't feel that way that often. So one of the ways that I'm starting to recognize, okay, so if I'm on the path of disruption and I know it's got to be driven by discovery, which is the seventh accelerant of personal disruption, which means I'm going to feel a bit scared and lonely because I'm, I'm walking a path that has not yet been trod by me, which again, by definition, scary and lonely. How do I know when I'm doing that? Because in general, there's this feeling of like, if you ask me, are you good at that, Whitney? I'd be like, yeah, I'm good at taking on the unknown. And then I started, I had this experience not too long ago where I was just about to interview Brene Brown for my podcast. So I was reading all her books like you do when you're preparing to do a podcast. And she said, okay, so vulnerability is when the outcome is uncertain, right? That's the scary and lonely. You're playing where no one else is playing. Here's how you know if you're doing it very well. Go to someone who you trust. In my case, my truth teller happens to be my husband and ask the question, what do I do when I'm scared? What do I do when the outcome is uncertain? And so my husband said in the nicest way possible, the thing that you do is you get, you start to micromanage. My children confirmed that that was the case. As my son said, you nanomanage and you get hypercritical. I'm like, okay. So that's the bad news because no one wants to micromanage or be hypercritical. But the good news is I said, so now what that means is I've got these markers. I have these indicators so that every time I start to do those things, that is telling me that I am on the path to disruption because it's telling me I'm feeling a little bit scared. I'm feeling a little bit lonely. I'm feeling a bit unsure of myself. And so instead of getting on my case, 
I can say, good job. Good job, Whitney. Good job, Sean. Like you're doing it. Like you're disrupting yourself. You're moving from who you are to who you can be. You're scared. You're lonely. And that's exactly what and how you should feel. Because here's the thing, Sean, when you feel that way, when you feel that you need to walk into the unknown and you do not do it, you will die inside just a little, which is why it's called a dilemma, the innovator's dilemma. Because whether you jump, whether you walk into the unknown or not, there's always a risk. I'm going to take the risk. I hope you will too. But that's, that's at the core of what disrupting yourself is. Wow, that was a powerful couple minutes right there. I'm really fascinated about what you called your husband, the truth teller. And <laughs> I'm wondering both for myself personally and other people listening, how do we find those people closest to us who can really give us that truth feedback that we need? Yeah. So, um, it's not easy to do. So, you know, I think, I think what I have found, um, I have a few truth tellers in my life, my husband, um, my children and my business partner, because what happens at least, okay, we're going to go back to what we talked about earlier, the end of one, the experience. I haven't thought about this question before, so let's figure it out right now as we're talking. What I have found is that in order for me to have someone tell me the truth about me, I have to feel safe. And usually I won't feel safe, psychologically safe, of course. I mean, physically safe is a given, but psychologically safe until there has been a moment where I felt vulnerable around them, where I was able to show my insecurity where I was able to say, to be triggered and sort of be not my best self in any form or fashion. And I realized that they not only did not kill me dead, not only did not make, take advantage of me in that moment or in the future, but they still loved me and they still liked me. They still saw me fundamentally as a person of worth. And that sometimes takes a while to get to that place. I know with my husband, it took several years. Um, but once you get there, what that means is that when they tell you something that you could do differently or better, I can hear it because I know that whether or not he loves me or likes me or thinks I'm fundamentally valuable is not even on the table. That's, that's already there. It's foundational. It's not up for negotiation. It just is there. And so then when he says that, then I can, I can hear it. So to answer your question that you asked earlier, um, I think the way that you do it is you allow yourself to be a little bit vulnerable around a person and you test it. How did it feel? Did I feel okay when I was a little bit vulnerable? And then it was okay. And then you allow them to be a little bit vulnerable around you. And then over time, you build up those proof points that tell you, okay, this is a safe person. And therefore, I can ask them to tell me the truth because I know that when they do, I will not feel killed dead and I will be able to hear it. And in that hearing it, I will be able to get better. You've really just laid out a fantastic framework for setting that up. I'm interested, are there certain questions these truth tellers have asked of you that you find incredibly beneficial? That have asked of me? Correct. Hmm. That is an excellent question. You know, I've never really thought of it like that, Sean. And now, now I'm curious because, you know, I just had 
um, I just had Hal Gregerson on my podcast who wrote a book called Questions Are the Answers. And then I was listening on LinkedIn or, you know, responding and someone said, you know, you really should pay attention to the questions that people ask you. And I had never thought of that before. And so now as you and I are talking about this and you're asking that question is, what questions do you truth tellers ask you? Because by definition, they're telling you something, but what do they ask you? I have no idea. It's a great question. Do you have some thoughts? What would you say to that? It's a tough question and a very good question and one I should probably wrestle with more myself. Uh huh. I feel like it's kind of those simplistic questions and then following up the simple question with allowing the person who's talking enough freeway and space. So I just asked you that. And because I didn't respond to you immediately when you said you hadn't been asked that, you could feel yourself thinking through the question even more. And I've discovered in myself that when people give me that space, I talk things through better. And then at the end of that, I can clearly articulate them. So it's almost like setting up a, a broad foundational question about, this would be a bad example, but, but what do you enjoy most when doing XYZ activity? And then I'll give a response to that immediately, and then they won't respond. But by giving me that almost awkward pause, I continue to expand upon that. And it's almost like asking someone, why, why, why? You kept getting yeah. deeper at the root cause. So I, I, I didn't know if there was questions that, that you've been asked that you, that you really enjoyed. But to get back to the point when I first asked you about the truth tellers, and I'm really interested, what was going through your head when you say that you haven't thought of this question before? What's your mind yeah. doing at that time? I love how you do this like meta. Um, so when you asked me that, I thought that part of what I, I shared with you, but then I thought, so a couple of things I'm thinking now is like, huh, I wonder if I should, if it would make sense to like really wonder what questions my husband is asking. I think with him in particular, the question is always just an open question. So I can just say, you know, we're just always asking the question, what are you thinking? What's on your mind? You know, and I, I'm able to say what's on my mind and kind of talk through it. But then the next thing that went to my mind is I thought of Michael Bungay Stanier and this idea of coaching and then the coaching that I do. And, and the question, one question that he tells us to ask is, and what else? So when you're talking to someone and they say, and blah, 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 and then say, and what else? And what else? And what else? And they're like, anything else? And then they'll say no. And so then that allows you to... Um, you know, sort of get everything out on the table. But, but as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, I feel like I have a homework assignment now, Sean, is to go back to my husband and or my children and say, so what questions do you want to ask me? And give that space, just like you would when you're trying to get your colleagues to give you feedback. And you're, and Kim Scott says, you're supposed to say, so what feedback do you have for me? And then you stop for six seconds and wait to see what they say. And so I think it's an interesting challenge for me to go to my husband and or children and say, so what questions do you have for me? And see what happens. What's so exciting for me right now is just seeing your process unfold right in front of us. Because one of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is your ability to just conquer multiple domains. You, you really have excelled across vast fields. So I'm just overall interested in your skill acquisition when you're approaching a new domain what are you doing to just rapidly evolve in that skill set 
Okay. Do you have um, a question around a specific domain or do you want me to just to go more general? I'm interested in going general, but let's, for example, talk about becoming an author. And okay. that was something completely different. And you were able to pick that up and create three incredible books. Great. Okay, good. Okay. So, um, so with an author, I think, uh, so, you know, I had been an equity analyst, so I would write, you know, research pieces on, you know, like this stock's a buy, it's a buy for these three reasons, et cetera. So I, I'd done a lot of writing, but it was, you know, what I would argue to be technical writing. There's not really a voice there, my personal voice. So, um, so when I left Wall Street, I was like, I want to start a blog. And I think it's important. And so I think one of the ways I go about skill acquisition is there's something that I feel like I need to say or do, and I've got to figure out how to do it, and I've got to get the skills to do it. And so in this particular instance, I thought, well, I'm having all these conversations with people around, you know, I, I've just left Wall Street. I'm feeling really like, wow, this is so exciting. I did this dream. I started as a secretary and now I was like an award-winning equity analyst. And so I was talking to a lot of my friends who were saying, you know, that were rearing children as well. And I was like, so what's your dream? What do you want to do? And they would be like, well, I don't really have a dream. But then there was this sense of like, they didn't feel like it was their privilege to dream. And so there was this sense in me of like, I have to talk about this. I have to write about this. I have to figure out how to blog because this is 2006 when people like a ton of people weren't blogging. So my skill acquisition approach was and continues to be, I need to figure out how to do this. I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to find people who can help me do it. Some people are focused on, I'll just go watch a video on YouTube more and more, or I'll Google it and it will teach me how to do it. That is not how I tend to learn. I think it's a great way to learn and I wish I did more of it. But my tendency is to say, who can I find that knows how to do this, that can either teach me how to do it because if in learning how to do it, it will leverage strengths that I already have and or who is someone that knows how to do this thing that I need help in order to accomplish what I want to get done. So for example, writing. The writing piece, I said, I need to find an editor who can help me figure out how to do this, start the blog. And then when I wanted to write the book, help me edit the book and help me shepherd me through the process. So that was something to expand on a skill set that I had. But the actual publishing or writing of a blog, I needed to find technical people who could help me build the website. That's not something I knew how to do. So, nor did I want to learn how to do it because it did not leverage what I already did uniquely well. So it's, who can I find that can either teach me how or coach me through how to do it? Or who can I find that I can delegate it to or outsource it to? Um, whether it's writing, whether it's learning how to podcast, um, whether it's learning how to speak. Almost always, I find someone who can help teach me, get me started, get me over that early stage of it being super scary, um, and then start to build confidence. And then over time, the people I'm asking to help me do it start to shift. But that's, that's typically my approach. I think the word that has just been flashing in my head during this entire conversation is curiosity. And hmm. I would just love to get your thoughts around curiosity for yourself. You know what's interesting about that word is I do not have never thought of myself as being curious. Isn't that interesting? Can you explain? I don't know. I just, I, I've always 
it's funny because when I was in high school, I asked lots of questions. In fact, so much so that my friends teased me. And then I felt the need to be an apologist in my high school yearbook. I wrote asking questions is a sign of intelligence. But for some reason, and maybe because of that, maybe because people teased me for it and I was somehow like, they thought it was a little bit of a pejorative, right? I think that maybe I never thought of it or framed it that way of being curious. What's fascinating to me is I think what you're saying is, Whitney, I see you as being curious. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's a nice compliment. Thank you. Um, someone said to me the other day, and I wish I could remember who, because I'd like to give them credit for it. Oh, I know it was, who it was. Her name is Didem Takei. She's, um, she's in Turkey. She runs a, something called the Management Center of Turkey, so teaches leadership in the, in the country of Turkey. She said to me, you know what, Whitney, I think that when we're in that discovery-driven place and we're feeling afraid, if we can reframe and get curious and ask questions and wonder what is next, that fear that we feel flips and we're no longer afraid. And that was really powerful to me. And so as I'm listening to you ask me this question and I'm processing, I'm realizing that curiosity or asking questions or wondering or figuring out how to make meaning have all been my mechanisms for not being afraid for moving forward. And I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you for helping figure that out. No, no, thank you. Because the word, it's funny, I was in a, a big marketing meeting last week and this word came up as one of the fundamental beliefs of the company and the founders were were arguing amongst it because it was a word some of them didn't identify with while others felt so strong about it. And I, I meant it as an absolute compliment. Listening to you talk, I can just feel the, the mechanics in your brain working and it's really fascinating <laughs> and it's so interesting because you seem to have an innate curiosity in a lot of different things. But then what I love so much is that you can start from ground zero and really learn those skills. So it's it's a very cool thing to both see in your writing and then experience right now with this call. Interesting. Oh, okay. You taught me something today, Sean. I love that. <laughs> those are the best kind of conversations, right? Where you start to just co-create and in the process of that conversation, you both, we both learn. That's the best. Yeah, it's, it's certainly fun during these conversations. I'm really interested though, is how well you're able to figure out your unique skills, leverage those, find out your weaknesses. So when you're really looking back at your career, what do you think some of your most profound skill sets are? Yeah, so here's where I think I had two epiphanies. One is, so oftentimes too, our profound skills, we, we reject them. We don't, like I said, we don't value them, but we also reject them. So I'm going to tell you two stories. Um, The first is that um, when I was working on Wall Street, so I was an equity analyst and I thought that was pretty awesome because, you know, I could upgrade or downgrade a stock and it would go up or down a couple percentage points. Not always, but sometimes, which is pretty heady stuff. I realized this is probably 2002, maybe 2003, when American Idol was at its zenith. Um, I had just read Tom Peters' book called A Brand Called Called You, not book, but article. And we were doing a training meeting for my colleagues who were all equity analysts. And I started doing this training thinking, you know what? Every contestant on American Idol is a brand. 
they're all a brand. They're like the comeback kid. They're the superstar. They're the, you know, you know, they're up and coming. Like they all have a brand. And isn't that true for equity analysts as well? Like we all have a brand, like one colleague might be the forensic analyst. He can dissect a balance sheet. The other one might be spot on earnings estimates. Another one might be the great stock picker. The other one might be great relationships with, with people, you know, with management teams. We all have a brand. So how do we lean into that brand? I spent a ton of time on this. I was not getting paid. No one even cared if I did it, but I did it. And I realize now that was a signal to me that my, my interest was not in picking stocks. It was in picking people, investing in people and concepts and dreams. And I had a colleague show that to me. Her name is Crystal Weiniger, who she's like, that's what you do. You're not an investor in stocks. This is what you care about investing in. So that was a really big insight for me to discover that about myself or start to have this sense that that was something true about myself. But here's what was the challenge is I also discovered about myself that I am a really good coach. Like people have for probably up to two decades now come to me and said, I'm trying to figure something out. What do you think? What advice would you give me? And now this is, so there's the dark side where I micromanage, but there's the light side where if people ask me for advice, I can boom, 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 boom. Here's what I think you should do. And frequently it is very good advice. So I'm a good coach. I'm a good advisor. People told me that that was a compliment that I got over and over again. And I would dismiss it not only because I got it a lot, but also in my mind, it wasn't valuable. And, and this is hard for me to say, I felt like that's something that women do. Men don't coach, women coach. And if women do it and men don't do it, it can't be valuable. That was hard for me. Hard for me to realize that that's how I felt about it. Hard for me to realize that I was denigrating my own feminineness um, in feeling that way. And also recognizing that if I'm not willing to own this thing that I I'm good at and investing in people, this thing that I'm good at of coaching people, I am never, ever going to be superb or exceptional. I'll be good. I was a good equity analyst. In fact, I was very good, but I won't be superb until I'm willing to take those things that I have rejected for whatever reason, either because it's my femaleness, either it's because it's a coach that I don't value it because other people say it to me, whatever reason, it was only when I was willing to start to identify, figure out how to identify them, and then to own them and to really, really leverage and use them. And so that is why I think sometimes people don't start to make really great contributions until they start to hit their 40s because they're spending all this time figuring all that stuff out. And once they figure that stuff out, then they're in a position to move off that low end of the S-curve into the sweet spot of their S-curve and their contribution and, and what they can do and, and the meaning that they can make and the fun that they can have in their lives. Could you expand upon, you mentioned picking people, and I forget if it was a friend or a coworker, the woman who, who identified that in you. Yeah. So, so when I invest in people, what am I doing? So as a stock picker, you are looking for momentum, right? You're like, okay, this stock is here, but there are some one or two things or three things or catalysts that are going to either it's got momentum and I think the momentum will continue 
or it doesn't have momentum, but it's about to be. So I'm really good at spotting momentum. And so if you think about that from um, a, a perspective of a stock, that makes sense. Well, what does it mean for people? If I invest in people, I'm either able to say, hey, you've got these strains and you've got this momentum lean into this, or you don't have momentum, but here's what I see you as being able to do uniquely well, because that's something else I'm able to do very well, is name people's strengths if I can spend even a little bit of time with them. And then that once you will double down on those strains, then you will be able to gain momentum. And so it's effectively saying um, you're a buy based on what you're doing, or if you will do these things, you will become a buy in the sense that you will have momentum and your value will increase for you personally, but also in the marketplace. You mentioned being able to identify these skills in certain people. You coach a lot of high-end clients, a lot of very successful people. Are there reoccurring questions or things you do initially to start unpacking some of these? Yeah, so... um, Some of the things that I will do is um, we'll do a 360 because I might not know them very well yet. And so we'll find out what their peers and people, including their partners, see them as doing well and start there and then really re-emphasize those and talk about them. Some questions that I also ask are um, something I've said a few minutes ago is uh, what compliments do you get that you dismiss? I'll ask questions like what exasperates you? Um, because Alana Kate said that the frustration of genius is believing if it's easy for you, it must be easy for every else, everyone else. So what are those things that frustrate you that you say to yourself, this is just common sense. That's a clue to what is, you know, part of your genius. And then I'll also ask again, building on Marcus Buckingham's research is what makes you feel strong? Um, because when you know what makes you feel strong, then you start to know what your strengths are. So those are some questions that I ask, you know, what did you love to do as a child? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? You're nothing you have to think about. Like I said, I wasn't thinking about what stocks I want to buy. I was thinking about how can I help this person be more successful? So that, again, those were signals for me. So those are all questions that I ask. And then also just the more general, you know, what, what are, what is the marketplace? What are your peers? What are your colleagues? What, what are the people around you that know you? telling you that you do well. Let's start to to play with that and figure out how we can lean into that. What do you think you were going to be as a kid, Whitney? You know, it's a great question. Um, and when I was really young, I thought I wanted to be a concert pianist when I was like seven or eight because I was really good on the piano, but I didn't love the piano by the time I was 11. And then for a while, I wanted to be an ice skater. Um, but until I was like 10 or 11, You know, what's interesting is that by the time I was 12, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. I had, I just had some vague notion that I would get married and have a family. And I think, I don't know if this happens for everyone, but I do think at least in my generation, this is something that happened to a lot of girls. We didn't really know. We either had kind of ridiculous, I'm going to be an Olympic ice skater dream which wasn't realistic for, you know, most billions of people. Um, or we just didn't have a dream at all. So I, I, I've had a very discovery-driven path of figuring out what my dreams actually are. Thanks for being so honest on this. I feel like you, you've gone really deep on a, on a lot of things that you could have held back. So thank you. I know that makes so much more of an enjoyable experience for, for everyone listening in on this and, and then myself personally. Something that I keep noticing 
And I know you're a huge reader because of your website, all the books you list, but you've brought up multiple ones so far today. Are there any other ones that just really come to mind for you? These don't have to be business or self-help books, but just books that you've gone back to over the years? Yeah. Um, well, the one book that I'm thinking of, one of my favorite books ever is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Um, my mother read it to us as a child. So I love that book. And part of the reason I love that book is that when they were about to be completely overcome by the evil empire, I don't remember who it was. It's not that Star Wars, but they were about to be overcome and they were like hating that thing that was about to overcome them. They realized Charles Wallace, the little boy realized I have to just love them. And this idea of the only way through oftentimes is the thing that we think we can't do and it's loving and caring. It's not, not, not pushing away and hating. And so that has always really stayed with me. Um, another book that I really love um, or author that I love is uh, Brandon Sanderson and he writes fantasy science fiction. Um, amazing author. Another book that I find myself coming back to is um, uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, in part because Ender is a perfect disruptor and he also knows how to embrace his constraints. And I read a lot of his books when our children, when I was pregnant and our children were young, so they have meaning for me in those ways as well. And then I guess the last book that I would mention is um, something that I've just read and it's by the Arbinger Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. Fascinating in that. Um, they talk about how whenever you have an impulse to do something for someone else and you don't do it, you betray yourself. You betray yourself. And in that moment of betraying yourself, you start making up all these reasons. Like, for example, if you have the impulse, it's the middle of the night, your child's crying and you think I should go up and get this child and you don't do it you are betraying yourself. And as soon as you betray yourself, you go into these mental programs of thinking of all the reasons why you're such a good worker and so valuable and um, how it's, of course, you need your sleep. And at the same time, gee, my partner, wow, how lazy they are. They should get up. They should take care of the baby that's crying because I'm so tired, etc. And so it puts all these self-deceptions in motion um, that are really counterproductive to positive relationships, all because you had this impulse to do something and you didn't do it. And in that moment, you betrayed yourself. There are implications and um, a series of events that unfold that are are very <laughs> unfortunate in many ways. So that book is really with me right now and thinking a lot about in the coaching that I'm doing. And, and just in my own experience, generally, when I don't want to do something, I'm like, okay, if I don't do it and I have this impulse to do it, I'm about to betray myself. I better do it. That's one I'm going to have to check out. I'm an avid reader like yourself, and that's one that's not on my bookshelf currently, so will have to be. So you've worked with so many people, and you're able to encapsulate so many of their interesting ideas. Who are a few people that you just continue to look to to disrupt your own ideas? Hmm. Okay, so what I would say, I mean, this is going to be a little bit of, um, you know, who I've heard recently, but uh, definitely one I mentioned earlier, Brene Brown, her work around vulnerability and shame, um, I, you know, as I think about this idea of personal disruption, and the ability to do that and the failure that comes when you're constantly trying to iterate around, you know, the versions of yourself 
the thing that I've noticed in, in studying for work, and I find it incredibly helpful for me, not only personally, but in the work that I do, is that it's shame that limits our ability to disrupt. It's not the failure. And so that's one person's work that I have come back to consistently. Um, another person's work that has really been influencing me um, over the past two years is the work of Bob Proctor. He wrote a book called You Were Born Rich. He's about 80, he's actually 85 years old now. He was very much influenced by Napoleon Hill, by Earl Nightingale. And his work has really influenced me in what's going on in my mind. And um, the fact that if I want to think something, um, if I want to, if I talk about or focus on the fact that I'm in debt, then I will be in debt. If I fo- focus on and talk about the fact that I am building wealth, then I will build wealth. And his thinking has been highly influential for me and is highly influential in how I counsel and advise my clients in recognizing that um, if if I believe it's true, it will be true. If I believe it's not true, it won't be true. And so what do I choose? Um, he There's a wonderful quote from an author by the name of um, Genevieve Birand, which I just love, is that the ability to choose in this moment is God's gift to us. I love that. I love that so much. We have the ability to choose what we believe, what we think, what we do. And that is something that I've learned from Bob Proctor. And it is certainly, I believe, God's gift to us. Wow, Whitney Johnson, you just brought so much today to this podcast. I can't thank you enough. You've got three incredible books, Dare, Dream, Do, Disrupt Yourself, Build an A Team. You also do coaching. You have some unbelievable resources on your website. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? The best way is to just to go to my website, WhitneyJohnson.com. You can sign up for my newsletter if you want, um, because I write something every week. It's always a lesson that I'm learning um, and, uh, if you want, you can just email me at wj at whitneyjohnson.com. And then on my website, you can listen to the podcast. Like this conversation, we talked a lot about strengths. You can go to episode 120 and we dive into strengths for 30 minutes. That is all we talk about. So that's probably the best way to, to be connected. Great. We'll have all that linked up in the show notes, but Whitney, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Thank you, Sean, for having me. It's been, you are a great interviewer. So thank you for the privilege and honor. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meat? 
Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto-friendly, zero-sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey graham. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and create his own. This low-carb, zero-sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant-based protein, 6 grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina, C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A, Crunch.com, and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate, and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you got you